Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Alistair McIntyre in chapter 14 of After Virtue devotes a lot of discussion to something that he terms practices. And he clarifies that this is a technical term for him, but it's also meant to connect up with our ordinary usage of the term. So there's not an exact identity between the two, but there's a bit more robustness to his conception. And after he explains what practices are and what practices aren't and how they work, he tells us something else that's particularly important for understanding how the practices are developed and properly understood. And he clarifies thereby the relationship between practices and then what he calls standards of excellence, rules that partly embody that, and the goods that practices are intended to allow, provide, further, protect, whatever it is that we want to conceive of here as the relationship of goods. And so we should begin by talking about something that he stressed. There's a difference between what we can call internal goods to practices and external goods to practices. Internal goods are those which can only be realized within the actual practice itself or analogous, that is similar practices. There are certain goods that are available to a person who has actually been doing well with this practice of say playing chess that are not possible in other circumstances or other practices, except those that are similar like playing Go. And there's lots of other examples that we might use. And there could be a little bit more stretchiness of analogy there, but suffice it to say that McIntyre thinks that one of the reasons why we engage in practices is because there are in fact some goods for human beings and not just for the people practicing it, but anybody who could potentially enter that practice and learn it and work through it. Those goods are available for the people who are involved in that practice. Then there are external goods and these would be things like making money or pleasure or social prestige. And these are available in a number of different ways. They're only contingently connected to the practice. So a great violinist who has developed her skills over a period of time and gone way, way past the rule bound activities of learning to play scales and various keys and some music theory. And and now is a spontaneous, but also disciplined player, they may become rich as a result, but they could also become rich by playing the stock market. They could also become rich by selling a particularly attractive sort of violin shaped candy, whatever it happens to be, we can come up with all sorts of things. But the goods that are attained, we could call it the goods of fine musicianship, which are not by the way, unique to violins, of course. It's debatable whether you could in fact develop this by say playing the tambourine or the triangle, but a pianist or a guitarist or a trombonist could certainly do that as well. So now that we've got this notion of internal and external goods brought in, we want to think about what else McIntyre says about practices, which is going to lead us to standards. The other thing that's really, really central to this is that he tells us that practices are something that we do, they're activities, and within them, we are engaged in developing and extending capacities to attain these goods. 
Now that is an often overlooked little throwaway thing, but it's quite important here. He says that the result of what we do in practices is that human powers to achieve excellence are systematically extended. And this happens in two ways. One, we might say at the individual level, he uses the example of the child learning to play chess. And as you become better and better at it, you learn to do strategic thinking within certain ways, right? You no longer just haphazardly move the pieces around or try things out. You start thinking several moves ahead. You start thinking about what might, will my opponent do? That is a capacity that is being extended for that individual person. Let's take the violinist as another example. You start playing the violin, you get better at it. You move from the beginner to the intermediate level. You start playing more and more challenging pieces. You engage in discussions with people who are also playing those pieces and perhaps are much better at you about what the piece means, about how the phrasing ought to go, about what's going on with the instrument itself, and you develop your capacities. Now this also takes place not just at an individual to individual level, but over time disciplines that are associated with practices like say playing violin become enhanced over time. We learn things. We are no longer having to reinvent the wheel from the very beginning. It doesn't mean that we don't have to engage in some development and we can just pick up exactly where other people have left off. No, we have to like catch up to them, but we're able to catch up to them in a way that's a bit quicker. And so this applies to any real practice. It has development over time, but it can also have degeneration over time as well. The internal goods provide a telos, a end, a goal, a function, a purpose to the practice itself. So if somebody is just moving pieces around on the chessboard and you say, well, what's going on there? Oh, I'm playing chess. No, you're not playing chess. You're just puttering around. What about somebody who's like hyper competitive and their only interest is in winning and they'd be willing to cheat to do that? They're playing chess, but they're not actually playing chess well. They've lost sight of what the goal is, which is to engage in this activity, not just to win, but to win within the scope of the rules, to exercise your intelligence, your strategic thinking, all these other capacities. Now, this brings us to standards of excellence, which are absolutely essential to anything that McIntyre calls a practice. And he tells us some very interesting things about this. He says that, a practice involves standards of excellence and obedience to rules as well as the achievements of goods. So we've got three closely connected things there. To enter into a practice is to accept the authority of those standards and the inadequacy of my own performance as judged by them. It is to subject my own attitudes, choices, preference, and tastes to the standards which currently and partially define the practice. So he says that if you want to excel or you want to even develop within a practice, you can't just make it up as you go along. You can't just pick and choose whatever you want to do. There are certain things that you may decide to do because they work for you at an earlier intermediate or even beginner stage, which are later going to be hindrances. They're going to screw things up for you. Prime example is when you're learning a stringed instrument, it is important to learn how to finger chords properly. If you're sloppy with it and you say, oh, I'm going to do it my way. Well, then we start to get to the more advanced things. You're not going to be able to do it properly. And we can say similar things with other practices that have a more moral tinge to them, like the taking care of households or communities, or the virtues can also be understood in terms of certain kinds of practices, right? So 
these standards have to be accepted at least to some degree. And he points out a few important things about this. These standards can change and develop over time. As a matter of fact, generally, that is the case. If you look at just for example, medicine, the advances that have been made just in the last century before us, and then in the 20 years of this century are quite amazing. And if you were doing things like a doctor did in 2000, in many fields, people would look at you and say, what's going on there? Why haven't you stayed on top of the newer, better standards that we have for how to do this or how to understand this or how to prescribe this? So practices do change and develop over time. As a matter of fact, that's pretty common to them. It doesn't mean that everything's in flux all the time, but there are important periods we can say. And he also says they're not immune from criticism. As a matter of fact, this is how they develop over time. People say, okay, these are the current practices. Maybe they could be done better. You know, prime example of this in educational theory that I went through myself as an educator is, you know, there are some people who are still stuck in the old fashioned chalk and talk and they're giving monotone lectures and they put things on the board and you're just supposed to copy them. When I was a, a child, I actually had a, a social studies teacher whose classes consisted in telling us to open up the textbook to a particular page and to begin underlining from line three to line five on that page, ending with the word not, and then to write a thing in the margin. And it was so incredibly stultifying. That's a sort of old school teaching method that has definitely, if it ever had any utility, it's definitely used it up. I think he could be said to be a poor practitioner of education. And then, you know, when I was a young professor, everybody started saying the era of lecture is over. It's all gotta be active education. Flip the classroom, no more chalk and talk. And I actually entitled some of my first videos uh, 10 years ago, Dr. Sadler's Chalk and Talk, because I wanted to say, no, actually there's a point to having lectures. Lectures do convey information. When I would try not doing lectures, my students would actually get upset and ask, when are you gonna lecture? We don't want all active education. Presumably, you know something more about these texts than we do. We're paying for you to tell us something about it. Lectures can be engaging. So we think about the lecture, lecturing within education as a something like a practice. It's not immune from criticism, but the criticisms have to be on point as well. Criticism doesn't just mean, well, we accept, you know, oh, there's something wrong and we have to change, become more modern. Criticisms have to be subject to good judgment. That's what criticism means, by the way. Judgment it comes from the Greek word krites, which means judge, like a judge at a recital or a play or something like that. So criticism has to take place, but the criticism cannot just be on the basis of something that's external to the practice. Like, well, this is too expensive or, oh, you know, not everybody gets pleasure out of this. Maybe there are some things that that's not the criterion for, or we could take those in, in, in a certain way. Dentistry, for example, there's some things that are going to hurt. We can make them hurt less, but that's not the criteria for good dentistry. When you get a crown or something like that, it's whether it's going to stay in. That's the, the biggest criteria and whether it's going to fit into the rest of your mouth and whether we could say some aesthetic considerations. So these give you some, some ideas. And McIntyre says that the criticism that's ruled out is any sort of subjectivist or emotivist analysis. There has to be something going beyond mere preferences. 
in practices. And so this is where we get to this notion of subjecting. He tells us that we cannot be initiated into a practice without accepting the authority of the best standards realized so far. He says, if on starting to listen to music, I do not accept my own incapacity to judge incorrectly, I'll never learn to hear, let alone to appreciate Bartok's last quartet. If on starting to play baseball, I don't accept that others know better than I when to throw a fastball and when not, I will never learn to appreciate good pitching, let alone to pitch. In the realm of practices, the authority of both goods and standards operates in such a way as to rule out all subjectivist and emotivist analyses of judgment. De gustibus est disputandum. Now that's a Latin phrase and he's playing around there because it's usually, there's a known in there. And it says, in matters of taste, we shouldn't have arguments or we shouldn't dispute with each other. And McIntyre is saying, in matters of taste, yes, we should in fact, and those should be framed in terms of these standards. If we don't subject ourselves to these standards, we will not develop. So it's not just, by the way, subjecting ourselves to these standards. It's also subjecting ourselves to others, other people who understand these standards better, who are further along than us. So he says, it belongs to the concept of a practice as I've outlined it, that its goods can only be achieved by subordinating ourselves within the practice in our relationship to other practitioners. We have to learn to recognize what is due to whom. We have to be prepared to take whatever self-endangering risks are demanded along the way. And we have to listen carefully to what we are told about our own inadequacies and reply with the same carefulness for the facts. This is not that we have to subject ourselves necessarily to every other practitioner or everyone who has sort of a higher rank than us. I'll give you a prime example stemming from my own high school years. When I was in high school, we had two main coaches in our phys ed for the boys. And one of them was the football coach. And one of them was the main track coach. And they also coached other things as well. And one of them was a tough but also insightful and, and really thoroughly good guy. The other one was tough, but a bully. And he bullied his players and he taught them to cheat and he valued winning above everything else. And he probably was a pretty unhappy person in his own life, but he certainly made a lot of other people miserable. And the gym classes were split between these two different phys ed teachers. And within the one class, we actually learned not just a lot about how to play floor hockey or soccer, or football, or you know, run or throw the shot put, or all these other things. Play basketball was a big one, wrestling as well. We not only learned those things, we learned the traits that go into good sportsmanship. And not everybody succeeded in that, but he was able to teach that. Whereas the other coach engaged in, in bullying behavior, as I mentioned, encouraged it, and it really made a lot of people miserable, including the people who were at the top of his pecking order. I can actually look at life outcomes for these different people based on Facebook and see that the people who had this coach turned out to be happier on the average, and the people who had this coach turned out to be more miserable on the average. Subordinating yourself to everybody within a, a practice isn't necessarily what McIntyre's talking about. It has to be to the people who are actually the master practitioners and who have some other things going for them. So there's two other things that we need to talk about here. Standards can be partly embodied in rules and in orders from the superiors within the tradition, but only partly so. And one of the things that you learn as you progress within a practice is when to make your own judgment calls, when you need to listen to the rules and when you need to abandon them. 
The other thing that McIntyre points out, and I think that this example of the coaches illustrates this very well, is that in order for a practice to be sustainable, in order for people to develop, there are these virtues that are required within it. He says, we have to accept as necessary components of any practice with internal goods and standards of excellence, the virtues of justice, courage, and honesty. Without these sustaining the practice, not everything happens that should, or things can actually go quite astray. So we've got a dynamic connection here between practices, standards, rules, goods, and indeed certain types of virtues. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works. <laughs>